is about the transistor. There are three transistors here in this collection of small electronic parts. The original point contact type, the junction type, and the phototransistor. And here is a more complex type of transistor. This is called the junction tetrode. These tiny transistors are destined to play a big part in our electronic age. They will make possible smaller, more compact electronic devices that will need less maintenance and have a longer life. But to grasp fully the importance of these new members of the electronic family, let's recall the wonders made possible by the high vacuum tube. A Space Podyssey. I'm Wes. And I'm Brad. Thank you. You are cleared through voice print identification. Open the pod bay doors, please, pal. Do we want to start with some news? I think we should. There's a lot going on. Shoulders. It was certainly my good fortune running into you. Let go of him. Let go of me. I said let go. I'm trying. Don't let go. Keep me safe. Don't let go. Suit yourself. Stanley Kubrick apparently was an incredibly large fan of the band Ministry, the industrial rock band. What? And it just recently had come out that he personally requested that their music be featured in AI, the film. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, two things that I uh, truly do love. Uh, always, yeah. uh, my older sister introduced me to Ministry when I was far too young to even understand uh, what they were so angry about. But... <laughs> Still, yeah, what a what a crazy um, collaboration that he had that's in mind. Uh, but, you know, can't have everything, I guess. Well, I had no idea. But that's, again, yeah, so an, another alternate universe where there's the Pink Floyd scored 2001 and the Ministry scored Stanley Kubrick directed AI. Yep, yep. I think he had selected three, yeah, three different songs from Ministry that he was going to include. He had passed away before that film was in full production, mm -hmm. and he handed the rights over to Spielberg. So I guess who didn't? Who wasn't as much of a ministry? I guess fan. he wasn't as much of a ministry fan. <laughs> blah, blah. Now that I want to see, I want to see Spielberg take Lucas to a ministry concert in Scorsese. I'd like to see. Well, well, Scorsese with his background and almost you know being a priest might you know the ministry thing he might misunderstand and go along. Yeah, um, and I think they they did end up making an appearance. That was a special request yeah. from Kubrick, and they're um, they're in the film as the Flesh Band in That's AI, amazing. the actual band Ministry. Wow, <laughs> which is incredible. so you're talking about like during the the monster truck ripping apart yeah. the machines. 
yeah, I believe thing. that's yeah. Yeah, so the flesh band being yeah. the humans, which which if you haven't seen the movie, the terrifying thing for the young AI boy when he gets caught and uh, potentially used in a demolition circus where all the humans who've Luddites for a reason because it's post-apocalyptic yeah, scenario. This is uh, they're blaming it all on the robots and, and take any opportunity to rip them up. Very much an idiocracy situation. Wonder what Kubrick would have thought of that. He probably would have. I think Kubrick would have been a Mike Judge it. fan. I bet he would like Beavis and Butthead. Ridley's a Beavis and Butthead fan. Is he? Mm-hmm. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> You're working. Shut up and take my order. So someone out there listening, curate a playlist of 2001 inspired ministry tracks or or oh. or Kubrick. And to that point, um, a future guest that we'll have on the show. It's uh, this someone is that is good. is actually well more plugged into the, the music scene and industry than I am, but has brought to my attention a uh, progressive metal band called Monolith. And they have created uh, several albums strictly based on uh, this motif. And it is a pure exaltation of 2001. Stay tuned so for a special episode. We'll be having a, an interview with this gentleman. And uh, he'll, he'll shed some light into uh, what has become a passion project for one of, this, uh, one of the most talented progressive metal bands out there. That's going to be so good. I cannot wait. Super fun. Yeah, stay for tuned for that. If anybody likes Knives Out, watch the sequel. It's really good. It's very different, but a lot of fun and still a great uh, mystery puzzle. We were both delighted and flipped out when we heard this. Oh, my word, this is, oh, my goodness me, this is, uh, that is, what, what, what is that? Oh, my God, it's full of stars. 2010, yeah, we made contact. Um, this is amazing, just amazing. Having so much fun, that accent's so incredibly hilarious. I had to watch that scene over uh, and over again at least a few times before we <laughs> continued. <laughs> I love ways of stars. But Ryan Johnson, just more reasons to love him. And the, the 2010 love we hope will continue into 2023 and, and beyond because we will be doing a deep dive into 2010 after we've gotten a lot of these big we've got pieces of yeah meat we're, off our plate we're laying the foundation Brazilian for our steakhouse. playground and yeah once the playground's built we can really swing around on the jungle gym and, and get a little wild yes it's Telecom TV security segment has an article right now by Martin Warwick. Quantum computing will move into a different phase this year. This is January 25th. He says, race to build the biggest, most powerful quantum processor continues, but there's a new trend towards building interconnected networks. 
of distributed quantum computers. China and the EU are spending more on the public funding of quantum computing than the rest of the world combined. Immediate applications of this are going to be healthcare, cybersecurity, and really accurate weather forecasting. I've heard that weather modeling takes so much processing power, and the only way to get it to read more accurately, and I don't know if that's the, the correct term, either accurately or precisely, you have to input so many data points to get a more realistic model. And as computers have gotten more advanced, we've gotten better at it. But there's so many different uh, very variables involved, you know, temperature, humidity, barometric pressure. You've got all of these single points plotted in 3D space. And depending on the size of the area they're trying to predict, they're going to have to run very powerful algorithmic processes. And uh, this is something that can it, it's not very good for rudimentary data processing like our tabletop and you know mm-hmm. laptop computers are capable of. But what it can do is take a very specific set of data and work through them very quickly uh, using kind of like a floating point process. Now, the problem with quantum computers, from what I understand, the very little that I understand, is they're not always very accurate. They may be able to perform quickly, but there's a built-in kind of like errata. And they're trying to make them not so much faster, but more stable. So there are less errors. Hmm. Of course, me being me, I equate this to burning a disc, a DVD or a CD, where your margin of error increases the faster you burn this disc. If you do it like 40 times versus right, two to right. four times speed, it will take a lot less time, it'll but still it's work, more but likely it'll degrade to... the information. Mm-hmm. Yep, no, I, that's that's a very good analogy. And you know, with these speeds, not really the thing. We, we've got computers that can process quickly. What they're looking to do is have a computer that can take in massive amounts of data sets and parse them out in a way that a, a standard CPU would probably overheat, or we don't have enough. We're not able to pick uh, pack enough transistors in that small of a space to to make it efficient. So, um, but again, the the cross side of quantum, you've got to have a very stable lab like condition. Probably very very cold. I can imagine. Very very cold. That's the main mm-hmm. issue, isn't it? So, right, keeping it cold enough for the process. Yeah, you're just burning tons of energy doing that. So you, you got to look at like how much processing power you're gaining versus how much power like raw power you're putting into the machine itself it's kind of like the problem with the fusion energy we were talking about before where uh, for the first time ever they were able to make a net gain however running all of the equipment the lasers the containment the cooling for all the systems uh, you're still using exponentially more energy Mm -hmm. so tricky but there are very specific applications uh, where this could be used in a good way and uh, hopefully not in, <laughs> in a, a malicious way, but you know that's that is the double-edged sword of a computer. Well, and and also you were saying that on Science Friday they were talking about uh, China claiming that uh, they've been able to and essentially use an algorithm that was originally intended for uh, quantum computers, and it was able to decrypt blockchain and encrypted data but they were able to take it from a 
quantum computer to a standard CPU, you know, solid Mm -hmm. desktop that that we would be used to and run that same algorithm efficiently. So they claim research documents. They haven't done any kind of like proof of theory demonstrations that I'm aware of, but (laughs) there's a, there's a possibility to disrupt lot of industries if this is the case and it's it's possible that they're just saying this to maybe just do that without doing it you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? <laughs> but, but yeah no um in theory and they didn't really specify how long it could take you know i mean it could it could take thousands of years who knows i mean yeah sure it'll work but but this first application could spell you know future issues with um, security and especially in encryption blockchain yeah because people at forbes magazine and defense today and stuff are flipping out about this stuff right now worried about how safe your your bitcoins are and your nfts yep don't don't want to lose your your sad apes (laughs) (laughs) well also on you know telecom it says that ibm has been hinting that later this year it will announce that it has actually produced its oft-rumored 1.121 qubit processor the condor Uh, they're also researching modular quantum computing and the 133 qubits Heron processor could debut in 2023, even as Big Blue's relentless determination to pack ever more qubits on a processor continues, says the article. Interesting. Well, we can be talking about Big Blue in just a moment. But uh, there's... there's Is some... Big Blue Deep Blue's successor? Wait. Or that's their nickname for IBM, I mean. Oh, uh, Big, Big Blue. Blue. I see. That's what I ran across in my research, too. It's Did, probably wait, not used anymore. Wasn't there a supercomputer called Deep Blue? Yeah, Chess that's Computer. Chess Computer uh, Deep yeah, Blue. Yep, 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 yep. From the 90s or something like that. Bishop takes Knight's pawn. A lovely move. Uh, Rook to King 1. I'm sorry, Frank. I think you missed it. Queen to bishop three, bishop takes queen, knight takes bishop, mate. Uh, yeah, it looks like you're right. I resign. Thank you for a very enjoyable game. Yeah, thank you. IBM built it as a supercomputer, as the first computer to win a game and the first to win a match against a reigning world champion under regular time controls. Development began in 1985 at Carnegie Mellon. It went from being named Chip Test to Deep Thought and then to Deep Blue. And it played Gary Kasparov in 96, where it lost four games to two, and then upgraded in 97, and in a six-game rematch, defeated Kasparov by winning three games and drawing one. I remember hearing about it in school, but that's interesting that they had renamed it Deep Thought. Mm, Not ominous at all. When did this guide come out? (laughs) Exactly. I mean, was that a copyright issue? That's a was good. that pre or post? Oh, yeah, because it would have been after 
So, yeah, that they was did totally a, a Hitchhiker's reference. They did a whoopsie. Yeah. <laughs> it was probably like the, the internal name, and then yeah. somebody in marketing didn't you know pick up with it. They had to check it out. Or they're like, we're going like, to get sued. Oh, sounds good. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> oh, what is this thing you're thought. <laughs> What is the answer to life, the universe, and everything? <laughs> it also says that the Biden administration is already considering imposing trade restrictions on the exportation and importation of quantum technologies. Okay. So we don't understand it. So let's not give anybody anything we can't, you know, undo ourselves. It's not good business. commercializing photonic-based quantum. Justin Trudeau announced on Monday a new federal investment to build and commercialize the world's first photonic-based fault-tolerant quantum computer. $40 million Canadian dollars are going to enable Xanadu Quantum Technologies, a Toronto-based Canadian company, to develop this computer, which will provide world-leading capabilities to help solve complex data problems and could be used in finance, transportation, environmental modeling, and health. So every sounds like this is becoming a nationalized technology for it's the new arms trade race. and defense yeah the new arms race is the supercomputing yeah and it makes sense because that will prove dominance as more and more of our finances and life goes online and ruled by the ability of our computers to function and how fast mm, it's quantum baby Let's spool it back a little bit, shall we? Okay. Speaking of uh, the politics and computers, let's go to the 1952 presidential election. Oh, boy. Good evening, everyone. This is Walter Cronkite speaking to you from CBS Television Election Headquarters here in New York City. The big election night, 1952, the year when the United States picks its 35th president. In the electoral vote... 266 votes needed to win. Governor Stevenson is leading in eight states with a total of 96 electoral votes. General Eisenhower is leading in 15 states with a total of 144 electoral votes. And now for uh, perhaps a prediction on how this voting is going, what the vote uh, that is in so far means. Let's turn to that miracle of the modern age, the electronic brain Univac and uh, Charles Collingwood. This is the face of a Univac. A Univac is a fabulous electronic machine which we have borrowed to help us predict this election from the basis of the early returns as they come in. Univac is going to try to predict the winner for us just as early as we can possibly get the returns in. Univac lives down in Philadelphia. He's one of a family of uh, electronic brains made by the Eckert Mockley division of Remington Rand. And uh, in a little while, we'll go down there and uh, take a look at it. But first of all, let me tell you a little bit about the theory of this. This is not a joke or a trick. It's an experiment. We think it's going to work. We don't know. We hope it'll work. At any rate, for the last six weeks or so, some 25 
Mathematicians, statisticians, and researchers, including some of the country's best mathematical brains, have been working on the problem which we've given to this electronic brain to try to solve for us tonight. You know, the theory is pretty simple. It is that uh, if you knew all about previous elections, if you knew how the votes came in and so forth, then as the votes come in in this election, you ought to be able to compare them with what happened in the past and judge what the result will be uh, tonight. However, if you were going to do that, it would take all the people in this room, plus a couple of hundred more with pencils and papers adding up figures, and there just aren't that many people and that many good calculators to do it. But this thing, this Univac, it can add 2,000 separate additions in one second. It can make 500 multiplications, 250 divisions, and do all sorts of other complicated things. So we hope, as the evening goes on, to get you a prediction from UNIVAC based on statistical principles of the result of this election as it happens. It was Eisenhower versus Stevenson, Natalie Stevenson, the first of two times they would show down in the, in the 50s. Eisenhower won both times, of course. For, for this new burgeoning medium of television, CBS News decided they needed a publicity stunt for the election. Surprise, surprise a high-tech publicity stunt investment by a news organization on television during a presidential election. Mm. So this has been Doesn't going on for a long time. <laughs> so they brought out Univac to process and tabulate all of the uh, exit polls. And as the returns came in, they would feed them into the Univac. And so they would cut away to the, the team feeding things into the Univac as they reported the precincts coming in on live TV. Mm. And over the course of the night... The report keeps coming in that Eisenhower is winning by a landslide, and the landslide keeps getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> and this is not what the exit polls said that they fed into this thing. And so it's like, okay, we've got a turkey on air if we're not careful. So they made the decision back in the control room. Okay, we'll just skip the computer. It can be something in the background that's cool. We're just going to report it as we see it, as we've always done it. It's a lot more reliable sure. than this new piece of thing. We're just going to be the laughing stock of the news world tomorrow if we keep up with this of course the end of the night comes polls close landslide for landslide eisenhower vote. turns out the computer was right all along that's so cool they had to announce at the end of the night that they had actually been right uh when they were given the information but chose I'm sure they to were sweating ignore it, it. yes <laughs> <laughs> and that is the main highlight that brings all this attention out of unifac and all these companies wanting it so let's go down to philadelphia and see whether we can get an explanation of what happened to Univac from Mr. Arthur Draper, who is the head of the new products division of uh, Remington Rand's Laboratory for Advanced Research. Art, uh, what happened there when we came out with that funny prediction? Well, we had a lot of troubles tonight. Strangely enough, they were all human and not the machine. To start a prediction like this, you have to assume certain facts about past trends. When UNIVAC made its first prediction with only three million votes in, it gave five states for Stevenson, 43 for Eisenhower, 93 electoral votes for Stevenson, 438 for Eisenhower. We just plain didn't believe it. So we asked UNIVAC to forget a lot of the trend information that we had put into it, assuming that that was wrong. So UNIVAC worked on a smaller margin of knowledge. 
this won't give a wrong answer, that it'll throw the odds to the extent that you saw. As the prediction, as more votes came in, the odds came back, and it was obviously evident that we should have had nerve enough to believe the machine in the first place. It was right. We were wrong. Next year, we'll believe it. So where we left off, Eckert and Mockley had um, taken the Univac system as far as they could go on their own money by going bankrupt and, and eventually selling off to Remington Rand to develop finally something that could be sent to the U.S. Census Bureau. So now orders began pouring in because it was a success and now the infrastructure was made. It wasn't going to be the kind of delay that they had before because they spent all the time on R&D. So it looked like they had kind of a monopoly on the market. Meanwhile, Big Blue, IBM, where do we leave them? We left them back at the turn of the century with Herman Hollerith selling his thing after going bankrupt after dealing with the census, dealing with the train companies not being able to keep up with the timetables, then selling off to Watson Sr. to this company that is becoming IBM. Here it is 1952, and they're still rocking Herman Hollerith technology. They're still using the same thing. Tom Watson Jr. sees the writing on the wall here. The census had bought hundreds of IBM calculators, and then they ordered the Univac. When that happened, Tommy Jr. panicked. So he's going on, he's trying to convince Dad. Dad's stuck in his old ways, you know. It's a classic story. He's, he's finally convinced by the passion that Jr. has that they have to move forward into this new future. 1951, gave him the go-ahead to start working on the first scientific calculator. Watson Sr. steps aside at this point. Jr. takes over. 1953, IBM has the IBM 650. It's a big, clunky, slow machine, less sophisticated, but it works in tandem with their old system. Mm. So <laughs> it's, it's not a DOS word processor where you have to go and train everybody to learn this whole new thing, but we have the typewriter ribbons, we have the paper companies, we have the, the mechanics and the oil. So let's just do electric typewriters, you know? So we can still maintain our infrastructure. We don't have to overload into this. Now, of course, this is an example that didn't exist then, but it's as a kind of a parallel to, they weren't gonna take the whole leap into this whole new kind of machine. Sure. They were gonna find some stopgap, a bridge, which makes sense because they had trained the pretty much the entire industrialized West, at least North America, how to use these IBM computers. Oh. Um, and they didn't want to train, hadn't want to change up into like, now that we have to send our massive task force to go and relearn everything. No, you know, this was a huge disruption and it was a lot more sensible to ease their customers into something that they were scared of, but eager to get into. So Excellent. America's best sales force, they were called. So they pushed it on their customers that they already had and it sailed in the first place over Univac with this IBM push in 1953. Meanwhile, the British tabulator company mm -hmm. makes a tic-tac-toe machine. Womp womp. <laughs> Guess what it's called? It's, a, it's an electronic tic-tac-toe machine. The Hollerith. Oh no, that's... <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of the, the last bookmark of our friend Herman Hollerith 
wow. and his contribution. We're kind of moving into a new age now. That's a nice yep. benchmark into this new world of software development. Now, what they understood at IBM was that developing software costs three times more than building the machines. I mean, you've got the development process, and then you've got the training process. You've got the the hiring expenditures yeah. and the labor expenditures on top of the amount of time that you're losing mm -hmm. waiting on production to to get this development done crippling it, it's crippling it's what you have is you have an evolution of coding now we learned last week that women have been really the core the core of development of computing and and coding since ada lovelace all the way through the ENIAC women and we'll continue to be going up into the 60s where our film takes place. What we start with is pure binary. This is where the concept of zeros and ones and how do you actually get something that can do it. And we know just like with optical light with and optical pits. sound, it's about on and it's, off switches. It's Morse code. Mm -hmm. It's shorts and longs. I mean, that's really it. Binary so it is such a beautifully simplistic language. And it takes forever. If you're going to code. <laughs> code and decode. And decode, absolutely. Tedium. So they worked up into a higher level of language with alphabetical and alphanumerical codes like Fortran. Not 4chan, everybody. <laughs> Fortran. Formula translation. Now, this is based around science mathematical equations. It wasn't as similar to if this than that. It is, absolutely. So then you have COBOL. And this is really where that was it gets, like the OG yeah. language, and a lot of our you know more advanced program programming languages kind of branched off from that. Then you're then you're giving more agency to the computer by allowing more of a vocabulary for it to understand and communicate. So you're not just if such an if a then b. You're now saying by a given that b then add C to D. They would have had to build a skyscraper to do that with... Uh... <laughs> Just binary? Yeah. <laughs> and that's what the beautiful thing about these high-level compilers that they create are. It's translating it back to binary. What you're creating is a system that can translate itself to back and forth. Now the next step is to maybe make it a little smaller. <laughs> I mean, these things are getting pretty big warehouse were we talking about the picture where they were rolling the cpu out of the was that in boston i think yeah I think mit so. or, or something but yeah they're they're wheeling a cpu out of a garage essentially <laughs> it's bigger than a car <laughs> i mean we laugh but man the impracticalities and they knew they knew uh, these systems would run, like you said, for a few, outer, few hours at a time if they were lucky. You've got vacuum tubes and just like rudimentary electronical components that were prone to, to absolutely failing during the, the process. And uh, not to mention having bugs, not only in the programming language, but physical insects getting stuck in the <laughs> data wheels. Oh boy! Yeah, and especially if it's your bank account, yeah. and you got a bug. Well, you know, Brazil bottle versus tuttle. It's like that uh, monopoly chance, you know, <laughs> bank error, 
in your favor oh nice okay that's fine yeah well bank of america specifically had this thought because they had at this time in the mid 50s bank of america had 2500 bookkeepers working on nine million checks a day whoa each bookkeeper had 250 accounts per hour something had to be done if we're going to get into this computing now is the time ge comes into the picture general electric makes this machine irma the electronic records method of accounting she sounds delightful and pretty accurate too more accurate than a quantum computer and more accurate than uh human error of um 2,500 bookkeepers. I'm sure she's exacting. So one bookkeeper at Bank of America would work on 250 accounts per hour. Irma could balance 550 accounts per minute. Whoa. That's such a game changer. Somebody got seriously excited when they heard about this. Yeah. I mean, somebody ran down a flight of stairs with a stack of papers in their hands. Yeah. (laughs) And the rest of them ran screaming when they found out that they had no jobs. All of our jobs are gone. Yes. (laughs) Yep. But a lot of them actually did end up getting retrained. Oh, good. By the bank because you need somebody to put this stuff in. I think we need this now more than ever. Mm -hmm. We need to lift everybody up. Exactly. And eliminate these menial like hard labor Mm -hmm. tasks and teach people how to keep them running and make them more efficient. So they get paid more, you know, they get to spend more. We all make more money. One thing we've learned in this uh, series so far is that differential calculus and trigonometry is really boring and people hate doing it Mm -hmm. longhand. And if a computer can do it for you, as long as it's accurate, inefficient why not yeah like don't don't break your hand over this it's not worth it magnetic symbols magnetic symbols uh-huh. printed on the checks what an interesting thought what you end up with Wait. is magnetic tape storage for these accounts you could scan these magnetic symbols on the checks which of course we still have on our checkbooks today those little symbols are still there but they are originally for the purpose of triggering an input on the magnetic tape that's so cool a hundred times faster than humans uh, irma ended up being okay it's, it's all valve based valve based all the time guess what valves are busting all the time yes finally 1956 walter bretany John Bardeen, William Shockley win the Nobel Prize for Ooh. inventing the, the transistor. S- Ooh, the transistor, solid state transistors, man. Holy crap, that was such a game changer. 150th the size of one of those vacuum tubes. It weighed 100 times less and in a fraction of the electricity. No glass, no like you know, compression issues, vacuum issues. None of that Beautiful. heat, well, not nearly as much heat. Way less heat. You know, this this was all kind of where we are right now with quantum in the late 50s, all this transistor talk. It's only in 1962 where the Atlas is built. The Atlas, it was the most powerful computer in the world with one million instructions per second. Now well, we could equivalent that to raw horsepower, so to speak. Uh-huh. Because if ENIAC was processing checks at a hundred times the speed of a human Mm -hmm. or irma 
Irma. We could assume that something that wasn't running vacuum tubes would be at least two to three times more efficient. Surely more like 10, 10 to 20 times more efficient. That makes sense. I don't know. It'd be exponentially more efficient because they're not having to replace anything nearly as much, way less heat. I mean, we're talking like 10,000 humans worth of (laughs) processing power. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) We we need to start talking about CPUs in terms of like people power. Yeah. How many PPs does your... uh, Yeah, PPUs. How many (laughs) PPs does your computer have? (laughs) But seriously, like people brag about, you know, BHP will horsepower, mm-hmm. you know. Blah, blah, blah. That's true. Yeah. How many cubic inches is my engine? Well, yeah, and and you have um, well, like what, what's a gigahertz? Right. <laughs> exactly. Three thousand people power. <laughs> yeah, that sounds pretty awesome. That sounds like <laughs> substantial. Premier Bank, powered by people. There's a new America in the making, an America that has taught amazing new machines how to do man's bidding to bring man's future closer. Every day, another electronic computer created by IBM goes to work in industry, science, government, or defense. IBM computers solve in minutes problems that once took weeks, months, even years. IBM's leadership in the surging computer field has created hundreds of new careers, such as IBM Applied Science. The IBM Applied Science representative consults with executives, shows them how IBM's electronic computers can solve their toughest problems. If you are a mathematician, physicist, or engineer, you can take part in making a new America. Call Dunkirk 55341 or write IBM Applied Science, 3625 West 6th Street, Los Angeles. So Univac becomes kind of like the preferred system. They want to really roll that out, make it a, a, a ubiquitous, kind of like a universal yes. thing. industry standard. But Big Blue. Big Blue comes in. They take over. They're, they're number one. They're rocking this technology. And they're going to be staying with all of that until something comes along called the integrated circuit. Poop. British paper engineer Jeffrey Dumar has this idea, or Dumar maybe, but I should say Dumar probably. It's like the Dumas. Dumas. I'm glad we're on the same page. <laughs> Robert Noyes manufactured this thing. If we could, hold on. <laughs> Robert Noyes? Robert Noyes. The chief, the... <laughs> Just wait a second. <laughs> He's a producer for Ministry. (laughs) (laughs) He manufactures it's N O Y E S, but it you know, who cares? It's great name anyway. That sounds like what, what do they call the term where you become the profession that you're nominative determinism. nominative determinism yes, yes. Nominative determinism. exactly yeah he was he was a guest artist on Louis's metal machine music <laughs> <laughs> and from Flavius Banks I'm Wes and I'm Brad signing off thank you Bye-bye.